reading from the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Lent, if you're unaware, is a season of 40 days minus Sundays because Sundays are meant to be a little Easter little one not too big but a little Easter these 40 days mirror Jesus temptation in the wilderness which was also 40 days as such the temptation of Jesus is always one of the readings on the first day of Lent it sets the stage for the whole season the temptation figures uh, first and foremost in the readings now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you'll know that there are four Gospels, four different versions of the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sometimes they relate the same events, but can differ in details. Sometimes radically differ in details. John, for example, drops the temptation altogether. There's no temptation explicit temptation in the Gospel of John. Both Matthew and Luke, though, have extensive versions of the story which are quite similar. Each has about a bit of a half chapter. There's characters, there's dialogue, there's action, and there's lots of detail. Not Mark, though. Not Mark's Gospel. Mark's a little sparse, you could say. After his baptism, we're told that the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. That's it. That's all that Mark says about the temptation. 
A few years ago, you might remember Marie Kondo, the uh, home organization guru who was super popular, uh, who basically said to eliminate all but your most essential stuff, that is Mark. Mark is the gospel, the Marie Kondo of gospel writers. He is a minimalist. He's the Zen of gospel writers. Don't say more than you need to. Well, Matthew and Mark or Matthew and Luke paint us a multi-paragraphed temptation story. Mark's version is whittled down to two single sentences. The bare essentials, you could say. That's all there is in Mark. It's very sparse. As sparse as Mark may be, though, there's so much packed into these two simple sentences. Let's take a closer look. The Spirit, it says, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. This little episode occurs in the wilderness, and when we're talking about wilderness, of course, we're not talking about like a hike in Banff National Park with tall cedars, rushing rivers, majestic moose. This is desert. There's no food, there's no water, tumbleweeds, and short cacti, and wild beasts, it says. I mean, I like to think scorpions, vultures, wild dogs, that sort of thing. Like, no nice little beavers building a, building a house. But scary stuff. It's a place of total scarcity of hunger and thirst. The wasteland T.S. Eliot described where the tr- dead tree gives no shelter and the cricket no relief. That's the wilderness that we're talking about. It's a place of danger, a place completely hostile to human life. And 40 days out there, well, it's a death sentence. The wilderness is not a fun place to be. Now, the only thing that's worse about the wilderness is what it says next, that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted by Satan. Tempted by Satan in the wilderness. I mean, what's worse about the wilderness is that the devil himself is out there in the wilderness. The personification of all evil is prowling around the desert ready to tempt Jesus. Ready to tempt Jesus. And what does it really mean when it says to tempt Jesus? Think about when Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt in the Old Testament, how they wandered the desert for 40 years. They were constantly complaining distrusting, rebelling, and turning away from God, this is more or less what the devil is up to with Jesus. Tempting him to disobey God's will, to avoid his death, on the cross especially. So not only is the wilderness a physically deadly place to be, it's also a spiritually deadly place to be as well. It's where the devil prowls, ready to tempt ready to pull away from God. Now, while the wilderness is disturbing in of itself, especially with the Prince of Darkness hanging around, it's how Jesus gets there to the wilderness that's perhaps the most challenging thing. The most challenging thing for us, anyway. Remember, Jesus doesn't just hop in a Land Rover and wander on out to the desert for the day. He doesn't hear a vague voice beckoning him. No, it says that the Spirit 
The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit of God herself is directly responsible. And directly after his baptism, no, yes, I mean, it's like, oh, you're baptized, okay, let's just get in the van, drive you out to the wilderness, we'll leave you, and there you go. I mean, we might celebrate a baptism with coffee and cookies, uh, maybe a cake after church. But it says that the Spirit celebrates Jesus' baptism by shoving him into one of the worst places possible to be where the Prince of Darkness himself tries to win him over. I mean, to each their own, I guess. All kidding aside, though, all kidding aside, God apparently loves us and wants what's best for us, right? Especially his beloved son, the one with whom he is well pleased. But God not only sends, God drives Jesus out to the wilderness. If that's what God's love looks like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to know the other side of that. Being pushed into the desert. A few weeks ago, an older gentleman in his late 60s wanted to see me in my office. He'd hit a really rough patch in life. He was originally from back east. He made his way out there after his wife died, and he'd spent his first night homeless in Courtney, sleeping at the Connect Center downtown. I mean, his major purpose in the whole endeavor was to ask me for money, of course. That's usually how they go. But before that, we talked about his life, where he came from, and how he got there, how he got here, where he was. I mean, and as often happens, the conversation turned to God. The conversation turned to God. I've never done anything major wrong, he said. I mean, you should see some of the stuff people were doing at the shelter. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I can see them. So why did God let this happen to me? You could say that he found himself driven into the wilderness in a place hostile with temptation, and his question was, why me? Why me? I mean, I'll be honest, it's kind of a tough question to answer. I mean, my guess is that this person's life was the culmination of many different things that brought him to where he was. I don't think we could see God's hand very clearly, point A to point B. And, God, and could God have spared him from his present ordeals, but somehow chose not to? Maybe. I just really couldn't say. Because often, it's easy to simply say too much. What I could say, though, was this. God didn't spare his own son, the wilderness, or temptation. We assume that God simply rewards the good with good things and punishes the evil with evil things, especially in clear ways, whether it's I haven't done anything that bad, or a giant scroll of paper listing all of our godly accomplishments, or that God's love equates to sparing us from hardship or suffering. No, we need to remember that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, 
the only truly righteous person in all of history, all this being declared at his baptism, even he was, was driven to the wilderness. Even Jesus, the best of the best, was driven into the wilderness. God would not spare his own son, the hunger, loneliness, or wiles of the devil in the wilderness. And what's more is that God didn't spare his own son from death on a cross either. Meaning that there's no reason for us to think that, no matter how good we do or evil we keep from doing, there's no reason for us to think that we will be spared our own whether we find ourselves in the desert through chance, through our own doing, or by God's own hand, what's clear is our goodness is no guarantee of good times. Nor does God's love for us guarantee a life free from suffering, sorrow, or temptation. Jesus was spared none of these things, so we can't really think that we would be treated any differently in that sense. Now, at this point in the sermon, you may have realized that we have left something out of the little couple lines from Mark's story of temptation. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. We even talked about the part with the wild beasts, but there's this little half sentence left. And it's this. While Jesus was in the wilderness, it says, while Jesus was tempted by the devil 40 days out there with the bears and the snakes through the whole ordeal, we're told that, quote, the angels waited on him. The angels waited on him. Or other translations say the angels served him. Or the King James, which always wins out in the poetry department. The angels ministered to him. The angels ministered to him. Now again, Mark doesn't give much by the way of details. I mean, what kind of angels were they? Were they just mysterious human figures that, you know, dropped off some bottles of Evian on the rock and then took off, you know? Were they the terrifying multi-eyed, multi-winged seraphim from the Old Testament? air-dropping doggy bags to keep him fed? Or were they just working behind the scenes, ministering to Jesus exclusively on the spiritual plane? We don't know. That detail isn't there. But regardless of how, though, the point is more the who and the what. Though the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, even though the Spirit shoves him face-to-face -face with the father of lies, the Lord doesn't leave him alone. The Lord doesn't leave him alone. He doesn't leave him to his own devices. Even in the wilderness, even in the place of temptation, even in the place of absolute deprivation, even in the God-forsaken place, Jesus isn't forsaken by God. But he's waited on. He's ministered to. He's served by angels, preserved by angels all the way through. Even in the God-forsaken place, Jesus isn't forsaken by God. 
You may know that this Lent we have 11 people who are coming to the near, near the end of our adult faith formation process called The Way. They are preparing to either be baptized or to renew their baptisms, renew the faith proclaimed in their baptisms the first time. And you know, baptism means a lot of things. There's newness of life, there's belonging to the body of Christ, the universal mystical Christian community, but it also represents our unbreakable union with Christ in life and in death. That in the same way Jesus was driven, driven into the wilderness after his baptism, we too are driven out into life with all of its wildernesses, into our wilderness world of hunger, suffering, temptation, and evil. And yet, since we belong to him, since we belong to him, we can trust that even there, we are never alone. Even in the desert, even in danger, even in unholy everyday enticements, even there we are ministered to by angels, whether the angels are the heavenly choir kind or simply the next person in our pew. Even in the God-forsaken place of our lives, we are never forsaken by God. And on account of God, we can brave the wasteland, whether it's the beating of the hot sun or the whisper of the adversary or if it's any kind of suffering or pain. Baptism means that his strength, the Holy Spirit, is forever our own. Baptism means that his strength his Holy Spirit is forever our own. We can't avoid the wilderness. This is true. If God didn't spare his own son, the wilderness or temptation, if God didn't spare his own son, the agony of the cross, then we can't possibly expect anything but the same for us. But the good news is this. The good news is this. Whether your sojourn is four days in a homeless shelter or a 40-minute burst of chronic pain, whether it's 40 days spent in the cancer clinic or four years of addiction, 14 years of marriage coming to an end or 40 years of on-off depression, no matter what, the promise is the same that you are not alone. We are not alone because even in the wilderness, even in the desert, you are ministered to by angels, by agents of the living God. And not only by angels, but the King of Angels himself, who was driven into the desert we call death, torn apart by the beasts of sin, death and the devil on the cross only to be raised again on the third day with angels standing guard at his empty tomb. He's the one that promises not only to sustain you and keep you alive in the desert, but to carry all of us out, out of the wasteland for good and into the lush, Edenic beauty of God's good creation, God's new creation forever. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand till he returns or calls us home. Here in the power of Christ, we'll stand.
I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Please remain standing as we'll receive.